0: Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
1: We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snack
2: Welcome, Snacky Tunes. Welcome. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I'm the other half your host, Darren Bresnitz. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me for a night of culture last night. Oh, yeah. I spent Cometh at the... At BAM. BAM. Brian Dennehy in a chair. Yeah. For like four and a half hours. Yeah. He stands a little bit. He stands a little bit. He stands a little bit. I realize now that if they... That's like a really good built-in like conceit of like how to have people on stage for that long. Conceit? Concept.
3: Conceit. Conceit. Conceit.
2: Neither of us are a bit right. Bit of an
3: emphasis issue.
2: Yeah. Uh, I usually do. Uh, <laughs> Collecting <laughs> us as always is our food guest, Jordana Rothman. Welcome back. What is this, like four years? Five years. Five, Five years,
3: years,
2: I think. Getting old. Yeah. And uh, we also have Odetta, who opened up the show quietly eating salad, playing live later on the ap- apropos record 222. Two, two. And Jack Insley. And Jack Insley, First time here. No, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> it's been a long time. Hey, Greg. You know what he told me today? Mm-mm. Chair budget for the studio's been approved.
0: Yeah, that's true. I can, I can, I can say that. We had a great board meeting, and we've approved a budget for new chairs in the studio. Well, I like these. Chairs. Yeah, I like these chairs. Uh, me yeah, too. Yeah. What's the problem? Whoa, like whoa, 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 whoa. Reupholstering,
2: whoa, whoa. maybe. Oh man. Okay. So yeah. we had a couch growing up that was like the best nap couch ever, right? This is, this is an appropriate story. This is an appropriate story. My parents thinking that it had been like a little like worn down, like they reupholstered it. And it lost all of its magic. Mm. It was no longer uh, like it was like stiff and all the love and care. So just you know, anytime people complain about the furniture here, that's exactly my
0: response. Who complains like, about the furniture? You know, some people say wow. these chairs aren't that comfortable.
2: Sun- I'm still Sun- 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 Yeah, you know the uh, the dream. A better chair is a pipe. You chair. can actually just edit that story and have it as an MP3. Where it's like host of Snacky <laughs> tunes have a tale of warning for you. Uh, the caution is real. Yeah, but yeah. So, Jordana, hey, it's been a year. Uh, what have you been up to?
3: I finished my book. Yay!
2: Yay! If we still had access to our sound effects, <laughs> uh, we would play. <laughs> Those the,
3: are all going towards a chair right now. The horns
2: <laughs> and the clapping. So, Jordana, we couldn't talk about it last year. Yeah, that's right. What is the book? What's going on?
3: Um, I co-wrote a book about tacos with Alex Stuback of the Empayon Restaurants in New York City.
2: It's the pandas Tacos children book that came out, right? Um,
3: Yeah, the 100 uh, Fast and Easy Tacos for Weeknight Meals. I thought it was in. called
2: Everybody Tacos.
3: It's called Taco God.
2: No, it takes two to taco. Yeah. 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 Uh, I wish you guys and, were and, there to th-
3: brainstorm. And three to salsa. And... <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. I love it. Um, Yeah, no. So last year... Right around this time I was ramping up and um, we just finished it and I'm really, really psyched about it, it comes out in fall two thousand fifteen oh. under Clarkson Potter. So, so those
2: but and so those of who don't know, after after you write a book, yeah. what what comes next? What's the uh, the modern media Where plan? Well, uh, besides uh, the what, waiting.
3: Can you clarify that question? I'm not totally sure. Yeah, like what the word out. How do yeah. you get the word out? Yeah, yeah. Um, and as a
2: co author, what are your responsibilities?
3: Well, I mean, every, listen, every relationship is different. So there's not like a there's not one way to to do it. Um, but, you know, the truth is, it's like I think there was probably a time when people didn't really um, publicize what they were working on for us. It was very, you know, like we developed recipes and we were in the on kitchens together and cooking things together and tasting things together and um, getting excited and workshopping stuff. And so, you know, I put that stuff on Instagram. I was psyched about it and talked about it. And I think he's psyched about it. And it's really um you know, I'm, I'm I have to start the next one, so I have to, you know, I'll probably put some focus into that, but I'm excited to be a part of that conversation next fall. Can we
2: talk yeah. about two or three recipes that you developed and blew you away?
3: Well, I should clarify, I did not develop them myself. Obviously, it's all coming from the mind of Stupak, who's Obviously, a brilliant chef, but um,
2: as a sounding board,
3: you know, there are a lot of you know, it's a very um, it's a, it's a provocative book. I mean, there's definitely you know, it, it starting with the fact that you know. It's uh, Alex Stupak who grew up in, um, you know, Lemonster, Massachusetts, and he's a white dude who's somehow dug, you know, really deeply into the traditions of Mexican food ways. And that's really um, provocative in and of itself that he is, um, that he's sort of championing that, that, that food in New York City right now. Um, so a lot of the recipes are sort of in there to make a point. I mean, wh- one of the recipes that we really um, thought about a lot was actually mole poblano, which the recipe that we put in the book is is pretty classical. You know, it's a labyrinthine Mexican sauce, 25 ingredients. Everything has its own unique conditioning. It's, you know, it takes forever to make. It simmer for, you know, you could literally keep it bubbling for like a year and just continue to add to it. I mean, it's a really complicated thing. And for us, um, turning it into a taco was sort of complicated because the way that it's typically served in Mexico would be you make the sauce and then you sort of simmer like poultry in it, venison, something like that. So turning it into a taco, it felt... Like there's this – there's so many um, – there's so much depth in that sauce that to reduce it to like a salsa, like a garnish, felt really um, wrong. It felt really at odds with the sort of philosophy of what of what that sauce really stood for. And so we really thought a lot about how to handle it. And what we ended up doing was actually not doing it in the traditional taco, like using it as a salsa, but actually we, um, we are doing tortillas that we're making with um, – Force basically force meat. So we we blend uh, raw chicken into the masa dough, and then make tortillas with Whoa. the chicken in the in the tortilla, and then we sauce it with the mole poblano and toasted sesame seeds, and it's kind of a nod to that tradition without while still respecting the sort of intensity of the of the sauce. So, uh,
2: corn or flour?
3: Um, both. I mean, you know, corn, um, but both. I mean, really the. I think it's easy for us as Americans to sort of think, well, flour tortillas are some American perversion of Mexican food. But in fact, there really is a there is a tradition of flour tortillas in Mexico, especially in the northern arid regions where wheat grows more easily than corn. And so it's definitely become part of the American Mexican vernacular. But um, I love both of them. I mean, corn tortillas are miraculous, sustaining cultures for thousands of years. But I also I think, you know, flour tortillas, which often have some fat in them, they're delicious, like naan. So yeah. delicious.
2: So I have to say that this book comes at a really amazing time. Congratulations, by the Thank way. Thank you so much. Um, with really a resurgence, uh, or not even a resurgence, but uh, Mexican food really topping the food ethnicity culture, like Cosme and Rene Rosepi's tortilla obsession. Like, Mexican food has now gone way above, which is not surprising because it probably has the most depth of flavor and culture and authenticity that anyone's looking for. But why do you think that it's here now and and why is it so popular?
3: Yeah, you know, I have a lot of opinions, a lot of opinions on the matter. I mean, I think that it's, um, you know, for one thing, I think it's a deeply misunderstood cuisine in the United States in particular and really around the world. I mean, it's a, it's a cuisine that, you know, because of our proximity to Mexico, we've really taken a kind of, I mean, our geographic proximity to Mexico, we've taken a kind of ownership of its cuisine. And I think that a lot of Americans don't really distinguish between Tex-Mex traditions, which is really American regional cuisine, and... Mexican food, regional Mexican food. Um, And so kind of it's one of those food discoveries, I think, that, you know, when people start digging into it and you realize, you know, as an American, you might think that Mexican food is sort of nachos and burritos and, you know, it's saucy and cheesy and cheap and whatever. And then, you know, and that stuff is delicious, too. I'm not knocking that but then when you start to realize like Mexico was this gigantic country and it has these really distinctive regional traditions and it actually has like as much diversity in its cuisine as as Europe, you know? I mean, you can go to Veracruz and have an amazing, you know, you can really feel the Spanish influence in the food because that's where Cortez first made landfall. And then you can go to the north and it's like chile con carne and cattle farming. And then you can go, you know, you can go somewhere and have, you know, the Yucatan and have cochinita pibil, like pig cooked underground. So it's just... If there's so much diversity. I think it's really something that people, chefs, want to discover and kind of dig into.
2: Do you think it also has to do with the fact that, like, I mean, the continuing tradition or trend of, like, just moving away from, like, fine dining and it's a little bit more. It's still, like, all, like, the layering of flavors, but it's still, like, a little bit more of a casual thing. I mean, mm-hmm. that Times article with yeah. Renee where you're just, like, so the main dude from Noma who is, like, made, like, you know, dessert to make, like, look like, you know, twigs and, and dirt is, like, chowing down on tacos.
3: Sure. I mean, you know, there's that element for sure. But I actually I don't think I totally agree that it can exist in the fine dining world. I mean, if you go to Mexico City, there's a tremendous fine dining movement that's happening there with Enrique Alvera, who's a chef who's now opened a restaurant in New York. And so I actually think that that's part of this conversation is that it's incumbent upon us to kind of let go of the idea that Mexican cuisine is a cuisine that's not worthy of opulence. You know, I mean, I think that it's really a matter of how you handle it, and it can exist in on the cheap eats end of things, and it can be really luxurious, and I think...
2: Um, but do you think it will, like, tear out in that way? Uh, I, understand, I understand what you're saying, but before, and, like, say in New York, let's say, like, five, ten years ago, when you go to get, like, Mexican food, you're sitting and you're paying, like, $25 for stuff that you could probably get in L.A. for, like, of the same quality that was, like, for five, six bucks. Do you think that they're... The level and the intricacies of dishes will yes become fine dining, but there's still like, you know, three tacos for nine dollars that are just awesome. Well, you're talking about well, that's the quality of meat and product. I yeah,
3: like I mean that. listen, like I, I don't want to say that, you know I don't want to say overarchingly like no Mexican food should be expensive. It's just that I don't I don't not comfortable with the notion that it must be cheap. That that I think is that's the fair. sort of Okay. Yeah. And 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 you're right, I mean the quality of ingredients it, it matters in any cuisine and so you know, when you give uh, when a chef is doing a deep dive into those traditions and they're gonna open a serious restaurant, yeah. they want to get serious ingredients just as if they were cooking French food or
2: But yeah, it's it's very, very tough to scale up and to do fine dining when what everyone's used to is an eighty five cent egg and cheese taco. Sure. The- I
3: mean that's that's it's it's I mean it's Sisy- very Sisy- tough. Sisyfician yeah. Sisyphysian Nailed
2: Sisyphusian? it. No.
3: Just Thanks,
2: Jess. <laughs> rolling back. <laughs> <laughs> rolling, <laughs> you're asking. Scroll back five minutes beginning of the show and see who you're asking for advice. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. You know, I've been to um, Stupak's Al Pastor place. Mm-hmm. And then I also went to Leo's, which is that truck in Austin. I mean, sorry, in LA. And, like, even if it's the top, let's just say, let's just call it even with, like, best ingredients, top ingredients. Like, it's a truck that pulls up into a parking lot versus a corner restaurant. In sure. the East Village in New York, like that's just that's going to affect the cost, even if it's the same ingredient. It's just it's a different playing field. And, you know, it not, a, you know, fine dining cannot happen out of a cart or a truck on the sidewalk. It's it just it's just different rules. And you're paying for seasoned waiters, electricity, things like that.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, Stars is, is a casual place, certainly, but it's a casual place on a prime corner near Tompkins Square Park in oh, yeah. New York City. I mean,
2: and the Alp- you know, and the Stupac brand, the Ampeon brand.
3: Yeah, well, I'm I'm super excited for that, and I really it was delicious. I, I mean, don't get me wrong,
2: it was delicious. Yeah,
3: I mean, it's it's amazing. It's the I I I mean, I'm always going to be a fan of Stupac. Of and, you know, we're we're collaborators, but I. I, I've never really given up how much I just adore what he does and that's really fundamental I think to the to the relationship which is there's a tremendous amount of respect like I'm psyched about what he does and so it was a o- real honor to be involved in 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 the writing of the book
2: We're going to take a quick musical break but before we do I want to ask you what is your newly discovered favorite Mexican dish that you think is going to be the new one that everyone does <laughs>
1: Um, no uh, pressure no pressure
2: <laughs> and go uh,
3: well you know I I'm, I wouldn't say like trend forecasting this is like going to be the new fucking oh, burger or whatever we're holding
2: but, you to it don't worry oh
3: no I know you will um, just in general I mean the, the biggest love story that I have to talk about in Mexican food is tortillas I mean what mm. I've learned about it and, and how deep we went with it um, and how much I can really really understand the nuance and, and appreciate what actually goes into it it's ancient and, and beautiful and
2: yeah um Okay, fine. The one dish that you discovered that no one else knows about. I- <laughs> just, or you didn't know about. Just give me a dish I've never heard of. That's all I'm asking for.
3: I mean, have you heard of Koshnita pibil? So yes. I, yeah. <laughs>
2: all right, Darren, just back Whoa, off. Just garbacoa, play a song.
3: Like, yeah. I mean, you know. Okay. I mean, it's not... Yeah.
2: Uh, I, oh, I, I <laughs> apologize. She, 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 you guys, for those who can't see this theater now, she just math that she hates me. Yeah. <laughs> just play a song. I, would, I, just, I just thought that there was something... Darren. <laughs> Darren, let's play a song.
1: Uh,
2: Bow gracefully. No, I just... Okay, I'm sorry. Bow gracefully. Oh, That's really it. hate me. You can say it on air. <laughs> um, well, look, I'm so excited for the book. This I'm really excited. me
3: too. I can't wait.
2: <laughs> and uh, maybe I'll discover something new in the book. I hope that you do. I hope that I do, too. That is my hope. Um, all right, this is Crush Beaks. The song is replica. I'm going to be taking just for the, the, record, the, break the Mole tortillas was like totally fine for on this side of the table yeah yeah that's totally oh yeah fine. actually you know what the chicken Maybe Jack
3: the- they will edit that last part out <laughs>
2: no no it's fine i actually never heard of meat in a tortilla before so that's new to me there you go there it is there we go all right i'll be spending this musical break taking my uh moly foot out of my moly mouth Oh, good. Um, so we're joined, annual, love of our lives, Jordana Rothman. Hi, babies. Um, And we are uh, talking about sprawl and how, you know, New York City used to be the center of everything for food in New York. And then it was Brooklyn. And now it's gone beyond New York, beyond Brooklyn, and, like, even beyond, like, the metro district. And a lot of chefs are who have trained in New York have come here. It is not uncommon... But definitely very, like, necessary for some guys to execute their vision outside of the city. Sure. Um, what are some of the more notable moves outside of New York from guys who are staples in the scene?
3: Yeah, I mean, there are... I mean, the, the one that comes to mind immediately is um, Gavin Kazen, who left New York. He worked for Danielle Ballou for many years. He was really the the dude to know at Cafe Ballou, was a beard winner. Um, And he left New York and opened Spoon and Stable in Minneapolis, which is a very exciting new restaurant, um, and really brought a ton of heat to that part of the country. I mean, there was already a very interesting food scene happening in Minneapolis, but he, you know, he he left New York to do it. Um, I think there are a number of examples that, like, particularly in the past year, I think we've really been kind of bleeding talent. Um, Damon Wise who worked for Andrew Carmelini, um, Michael Toscano, who's a real rising star under Gabe Stuhlman at Perla. That one hurts. That's really rough. I mean, and he's, that he's, one, he's under 30, too.
2: And I... Like, he was my... I love him. He's amazing. And I thought that was a little just like... It just happened so quickly.
3: Sure. I mean, you know, it's, it's a very... You know, so much mm-hmm. of this is like a real estate conversation. But, I mean, it's... New York is not... Such a tenable environment for, you know, super young talent who don't have very deep pockets and want to break into this world and do really personal, interesting restaurants. I mean, increasingly, we're kind of like we don't they can't afford to, you know, and
2: and the environment or New York is not. As important to finding success as it might have once been,
3: I agree with that for sure, and i and I do think that I should say by the way, like I don't know that that's why Damon and michael um and you know Gavin left New York, but looking at the sort of general trend of what's ha- what's happened in New York City, it's hard for me not to see that kind of and wonder where they would have gone
2: I mean, I also think I mean it extends like we have had numerous friends in the last couple of years make a mass exodus just because it's like you know cheaper they get more footage like money is a little bit better, real estate's a lot cheaper, and they're just like, I don't have to, I'm not getting up every day struggling just to, like, create something. I have, like, room to breathe. Yeah. And having even, you know, Michael Toscano's is a great example. I would say Perla was, was one of the more successful restaurants in New York, but it doesn't make it any easier. No.
3: You know? I mean, and, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't his. I mean, I, I, no, I, mean, I don't know exactly what his situation was with gabe stillman but he you know i mean gabe stillman's the restaurant and he was a chef and you know i don't know if you know I, I don't know what their deal was but it's not the same as being the sort of you know the hbic of your own place and being able to call all of those shots and you know have it look the way you want it to look and
2: michael cassana michael hbic always HBIC
3: <laughs> needs to leave new york to be an hbic i guess Except for me, I'm I'm in HBIC here, just right so here in New York. So where do you
2: I mean, and where I, do you see the chefs going? I mean, are they? I mean, a lot of our friends, you know, they left for LA, and that was kind of the magnet. But where yeah. are you seeing the chefs ending up? Is there like another you know city that's like uh, re attracting them?
3: I mean, I think Minneapolis is definitely on the rise. I've read a lot mm-hmm. about that city recently.
2: Nashville,
3: Na- certainly, like certain southern cities, for sure. I think that you know, I don't think I don't see necessarily. You know, I think there are other metropolises, metropoli.
2: Don't look at us for a grammar yeah. correction. Yeah, metropoli.
3: Let's say metropoli. Metropolosos?
2: Yeah. I've lived in many US. metropoli, my young, metropolo. my young years. I like
3: metropolo. Anyway, you know, I think that there are they they still <laughs> want to be in cosmopolitan cities. They still wanna be places where there's gonna be a sort of clientele that's there that can appreciate that is going to appreciate what they're doing and what they're bringing equally to equally affordable. And that they can afford and yeah. that they're exactly that the, yeah. the, the the customer base can afford. Um, so, yeah, it'd be interesting. I mean, even even the I mean, I you know, I don't know if the, this is necessarily a, um, an indicator of things that are going on. But like the James Beard Awards are not in New York City this year.
2: Uh, I want to say that that's probably like a much deeper. Sure. I'm I mean, saying, yeah. you know, but 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 you like will see, the, you know,
3: for example, the you know, the beards. One thing that the beards did was that, you know, all the people from all over the the country came to New York City for one weekend every May, and they ate in the restaurants that were really relevant to the conversations, and it was always a big weekend. There's lots of ritual around yeah. the beards here in New York City, and if they continue to be in other cities, who knows? I mean, they could come, come back to New York. I have no idea, but if it continues to be in other cities, what we're going to see is that, like, those people who maybe get to, were getting to New York once a year... Are not going to be necessarily getting to New York anymore. And so.
2: Especially the younger chefs, the guys who are only mm-hmm. grinding out maybe thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars $35,000 a year and can't afford to take off, you know, and they're getting paid and their chef's taking them, like, they're definitely not going, and they're definitely not going out to these giant meals.
3: Right. So look at, so, you know, if that continues to happen and we're not, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a drop in the bucket, but they're not coming to New York as much. And so they're not eating in the restaurants as much. And so it's not on the radar as much. And, you know, maybe that's a good thing. I mean, why does New York deserve to be the only place that? you know people are talking about
2: It's fine. I mean, look, Chicago's definitely having a moment. You know, Yeah, Chico- I mean,
3: I I don't think Chicago's hurting for it, honestly. No, 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 but
2: I'm but I'm <laughs> saying from a food point of view, I think I, I have felt for a while now that especially, you know, with the closing of like WD50 and things like that. Sure, yeah. But you look at, you know, what's going on in Chicago. I've always thought of that as a having more progressive options and people still being open to it and people going out Yeah. uh looking for those types of, you know, schwa Moto, Blackbird, all that stuff. Olivia, next, yeah. like all those places. Uh, you are- know,
3: again, I mean, I, I, I'm stepping on you, but I just want to say, I mean, I, I, I think something that new.
2: It, That's hey, it, guess what's a continuing trend?
3: <laughs> stepping on Darren, the yeah. Jordana Rothman story. Um, no, I think that, um, I think again, I mean, there, there's a real estate quotient in here too. I mean, you know, it, it, it is. It's in there. It's so, so a progressive restaurant. I do agree with you, very much so, that Chicago is much more. Is an environment that is much more open to sort of progressive modernist cooking than New York City, which historically has had sort of one, you know, WD 50 and then a handful of, you know, the influence sprinkles throughout other restaurants. But exactly. But, um, you know, in a city like, not to say that Chicago's real estate is cheap, but,
2: I mean, you know, there's a li- there, there might be a little opened, bit more
3: time to incubate ideas, yeah. whereas in New York City, like you open, you're already in the red. You know, like you need to make money right away.
2: And eating in Chicago, I mean, you know, comparatively, is like the meals are, you know, when you get out of there, thirty, forty bucks cheaper when sure. you, per person, eh, depending where you go. No, but I'm saying, but for the ones that get the same type of shine, I mean, outside of fine dining, even in the fine dining, room, like it is just relatively cheaper for the people who are going out, just compared to. What that will set you back in New York, which I think also like allows them to just have more creativity and flexibility and get more people coming through the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. um, and you know where I've also seen sprawl is on the other side of the river, not so much the East River, but the Hudson, um, with the Tall Day Guys. Oh yeah, there And Carino <laughs> Provisions, which is phenomenal, mm-hmm. and you're just seeing that you know people who I think now have reached a tipping point where you go to. These live in these Jersey cities, these Jersey suburbs. It's no longer just being like, oh, you're so close to New York City. You're actually getting a literal taste. Thank you very much. Waka, uh, waka. Of what's going on trend wise in Brooklyn and Manhattan.
3: But let's also talk about that for a second, too. I mean, I hate to be such a cynic and continue uh, to talk about money. but off, like let's...
2: another trend. You don't hate being a cynic.
3: <laughs> but I mean, you know, you live in Jersey City, right? You probably work in Manhattan Right, so unless you, you do that reverse
2: commute where you're living in Manhattan, working in Jersey City,
3: mm, yeah. Anyway, so you live in Jersey City, maybe you work in Manhattan, and maybe you you know work for a financial institution, you go out for drinks with your buddies after work, whatever it is. But maybe like you know, I think all of us, you know, we live in Brooklyn, and I the restaurants that I go to the most are still Frankie's Four Five Seven, Prime Meats, yeah. of the pl- places that are around me that are really close to me, and so I just go there all the time. So if you're looking at Jersey City and you're seeing there's a lot of young professionals here with some discretionary income and they can can either spend that money after work in the city or maybe they just like want to go home at the end of a long day but they don't because there's no amenities there that compare to what they... So if I'm a business person, I'm going to look at that and say I should open something where people can dump their money into it because... It's awesome. You know? And so they want to keep the money in Jersey City. I I think that makes a lot of sense. And
2: listen, going out there, just like imagine... You don't have to get home at ten or eleven because you went out in the city. Like you exactly. go home, you drop your stuff, you have a martini.
3: Yeah, Darren likes to get home around eight thirty. Eight thirty. Matlock.
2: <laughs> have a nice whiskey mat boudoir, and then head out to Corona uh, Provisions. Hang out sure. with the tall day boys.
3: Sounds great. No,
2: wait. You were telling me some story about you went out for your father's birthday last night. Oh my god! Night, yes. Yeah. And um, well, you can tell it.
3: Well, so right. So I grew up um, also on the other side of the river um, in New Jersey. And uh, I grew up in a very sort of bedroom community, commuter town. You know, about forty minutes outside of the city. Um, it's called Montville, New Jersey. You might know it because Teresa Giudice lived there until she, until now. I guess she's living in prison, so I don't really know. But oh. you know, it's it's a very you know, it's exactly what you think. Lots of you know McMansions and whatever. Although growing up there, there were I lived down the street from like a cider mill. It was sweet. But anyway, it is a pretty classic kind of commuter town, and. Recently, they did this sort of beautification project where they opened, they sort of started building like a little main street around the train station. And the the premier thing in this little main street was the steakhouse. Um, And I had seen it kind of going up when I was visiting my parents. I thought, oh my God, that thing is gigantic. I mean, it is like a compound. It is so big. It's unbelievable. And so my father's birthday was last night. So we go to the steakhouse. I guess I should name it. Which is Rails Steakhouse um, in Montville, New Jersey, and, <laughs> and um, basically we went there, and I was totally stunned. A because like I mean, there's not even like a drugstore in the town. I mean, there's nothing. There's not like a a business. You know, there's there's just not a ton of business in that town. It's a, it's an re- extremely residential community. So let alone to have like a gigantic steakhouse, like an Aspen scale kind of thing. So I was totally amazed and I was really interested and it was absolutely packed. There was an open kitchen. There were chefs. There were, you know, there was and there were all these different environments. And as we're eating dinner, my mother says to me, well, after dinner, we're going to go downstairs to the speakeasy. Right. And I was like, what? (laughs) Like a record screech. There's a speakeasy in the basement of this gigantic steakhouse in a tiny, like not on the map town the in New good. Jersey. You know, the drinks were, oh, and by the way, just to get into this <laughs> so the, it's a sort of to get into the speakeasy, you had to like pull a book in a bookcase on the wall and the bookcase slides open, but the door that slides open like says speakeasy and gigantic letters on it. So oh, it's like,
2: so, so close but uh, so far.
3: You know, yeah, like not so but so um basically yeah, the drinks were, I mean, they weren't were, they weren't world class cocktails, but they were pretty good, and they were, you know, they were pretty balanced, and they were, uh, you know, they were using fresh juices, and they were using, you know, they were muddling their 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 basil for their whatever, and they had, you know, I mean, some of them were made with spirits that I probably wouldn't, you know,
2: put okay. in the <laughs> okay, yeah, but applause, applause, for yeah.
3: Me. I mean, it's awesome. It's it, I was so. I mean, I think what's interesting about it, if I'm not communicating it is just that. It's a notion of sprawl. You know, it's like these trends, they, you know, they start in New York or L.A. or, you know, San Francisco or whatever. And then they become so widespread and you sort of forget about it, right? Because like, you know, PDT in the city is like the original like yeah. secret bar that, you know, opened and had that whole thing. And you go through the phone booth and it's not like a novelty to you anymore because you're so used to it. But now... <laughs> It's in Montville, New Jersey. I mean, it's just, and they're making like decent cocktails. It's a rising tide, man. It's good stuff. It's just, I couldn't like scrape my jaw off the floor effectively enough.
2: Awesome. Well, enough to drink a cocktail.
3: Well, I mean, I'm not crazy. Yeah. I was in New Jersey, for God's sake.
2: I had three. With your parents. <laughs> With so. my parents. Yeah. Parents on the weekend, you definitely need a couple cocktails. Yeah. Do they yeah. have punch bowls?
3: Oh my God! They had punch bowl on the menu. I was so shocked they had a punch bowl on the menu. And they, but I, but I Jordana, like- <laughs> you're staring. You're staring at the punch bowl. <laughs> I, I was, and it was like a large format. You know, like you order it for the table. But I mean, and it's
2: like I'm- it's, but it's not like any of these things are secrets anymore. So it's like anyone right. that opens a restaurant, you know, obviously they might not have been like the first movers, but they're like, oh, what's what's going on on the world of eater? Cool. I'm going to do those things. Right. And it might not be of the same quality, but like. Good enough for Saturday night in Montvale, New Jersey.
3: Montville.
2: Montville, sorry. There
3: is a Montville, but I actually that's spent. A, and I am that, not
2: from Montvale. That's actually thing. a Billy Joel song. Good enough for Saturday night in. A <laughs> <laughs> <It's not laughs> All right, so, so yeah. we're going to come back with Jordana Rothman talk about uh, some more trends from this year and what we expect out of the rest of 2015 here on Snacky Tunes. to That one goes out to B-shop. I love you. Who's going to Turkey tomorrow? And I hope he's okay for the week. I hope he's okay. They're not I hope you're so okay. much they're a not Jew so Turkey. B-shop. They're not so much a fan of people of our
3: persuasion. Persuasion.
2: Persuasion. And that's food charming. People. Charming. Funny. Charming. Um so Jordana as a food writer...
3: Really getting comfortable over yeah, there. Yeah,
2: really. Just, what? <laughs> look, just, take those, just take those jeans off. We'll get you a sarong. So as uh, one of my favorite food writers mm-hmm. in the game, mm-hmm. um, I have to say it's a really interesting time for food writing because even though there is the growth of the BuzzFeed and the Eater, the very like snackable, listable, things like that, long form, really pun intended, meaty stories, if you will, are on the rise like a good loaf of bread.
3: <laughs> That's true.
2: Um, and so, as someone who's on the story, on the grind, mm-hmm. flower pun. Um, are you going to use any of these in your writing?
3: Um, you know, I kind of let go of the puns. Okay.
2: Um, what has like what have you been able to pitch and write about, um, and find the support and the readership for that you maybe weren't being able to pitch for a couple years ago?
3: You know, um, less about specific stories and more about sort of the the way in which we approach them. Right. Um, you know, I think that. Uh, vetri wrote this sort of diatribe about the state of food media um a few uh, a little while ago and it was really about sort of like that you know stranglehold of the listicle and the roundups and whatever and that stuff is really you know soul-sucking i mean people love it and they use it and it's it's useful and it's servicey and that has value certainly um but i don't i don't i'm not as attracted obviously as a as a writer to, to putting those things together, I mean, I'd certainly do them from time to time. And I because I like to provide that kind of utility. But i it's it's really satisfying for a writer to kind of unpack a story over the course of a long time. And I think that are many words. and i and I think that in as much as like we have certainly seen a rise of that kind of, you know, just quippy, blurby, blurb show. Roundup garbage. Sometimes you just need to know
2: where to get the best taco in Utah. Sure,
3: but that has a lot of utility. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but um, I also think that we're kind of entering a golden age of of writing. I think that there are a a lot of really interesting periodicals that are popping up, classical print periodicals, you know, where you have a lot of room to kind of stretch out and explore things from maybe like a slightly more oblique angle.
2: How long does it take you to read an issue of Lucky Peach from Cover to Cover?
3: Mm, You know, I, I don't I don't measure time in the passing of grains of sand. Wow.
2: Wow. Um, I'm glad it's just a quarterly. That's my answer. (laughs) I would never get through it.
3: Uh, Someone's got an attention span issue. It's poppin' Addy.
2: Yeah, you know, I don't freelance. I have a job. You know, <laughs> oh, <laughs> all right, all right. But all yeah, right, I Tim. mean, that
3: stuff is good. You know, like Could it's you have you
2: Adderall. I need to finish reading my Lucky <laughs> <laughs> Um,
3: You know, uh, I just think that I, I, think that's a, I think it's a good time, and I think you know, the, the sort of both tides are rising at the same time, right? Like you have tons of that crap, and then you have tons of this really exciting, really rich um, stuff, and so I actually find that like editors that. I've worked with in the past who were asking me to like do a slideshow of like lobster rolls or whatever in the summer now like what's a you know what's a what's a conversation starter that you want to talk mm. about what's now something? is it like
2: going out like out and like spending a couple days with this lobster captain and the 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 heaviness and the gravity of their life and what it takes to be a successful one
3: sure I mean that would sure. be that. that <laughs> I think that's a good illustration that's a free of one what, by the way that's a free one yeah it's a free pitch thanks babe yeah um <laughs> You cover room and board too. Yeah. Um, so yeah. No need. Just
2: sleeping on the boat.
3: <laughs> <laughs> on the boat. On the boat. You can write it on the boat. Um, no. So yeah, I think that's really, I think that's really exciting stuff. And as a writer, I mean, it's certainly really great. I mean, it's just, I, I love that we have this chance to do it. And I, there's this amazing community of writers with something to say, and it's an exciting time.
2: You want to shout out anybody that you're enjoying reading?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I shout out particular periodicals, but I mean, I, I love Charlotte Druckmann. I think she's she's um, she's a thinker. You know, she really has a, a wonderful way of kind of um, taking a topic and looking at it from a lot of different angles. On the review beat, I mean, Bill Addison, who's taken on the national reviewing seat over at Eater, um, is a, you know, a total technician. I mean, he's a great writer and he's really rich and, um, in his prose and he's just, um, he's I really enjoy reading him. He's he's wonderful. And then Tejal. Oh, my God. Tejal, Tejal, Tejal Rao. Um, Legend. She really, I mean, she's, she's unbelievable. She's a poet. Oh, and Lagaya Mishan at the talk. So, yeah, I could go on and on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Do you want to be writing more long form? Is that like ultimately, as you do, I'm assuming what is going to be another book. Yeah. Would you like to balance that with things that do take a month or two to put together? Yeah,
3: um, I think I'll do a little of both. I think it's, you know, as a freelancer, I'm starting to realize that, you know, uh, you got to kind of clear the cobwebs every now and then. It's really important to kind of, especially if you're working on a book and it's such an insular process and particularly, you know, um, I'd love to do some of my own more personal work in the years to come. And so I I feel like to stay sane, you got to kind of just take on something that's somebody else's story and you want to kind of dig a little deeper Mm -hmm. into it and get outside of your own head a little bit and it's also just fun to like do the research i mean the research is the best part yeah. the writing is the torture the research um, is the fun
2: i'm more of a writing is fun research is torture but that's just me
3: how much do you write babe
2: like all the time i'm actually surprised you didn't list me as one of your favorite food writers
3: <laughs> do the emails count or what are we saying
2: this taco's great go get it <laughs> <laughs> um so before we get out of here i want to talk about a few few things coming up uh in this year and you know in the past we've talked about different ways and we did early in the show about how people get their food in different ways experience is a restaurant is a cart and things like that and one of the new or successful ways to do it is really the food halls and you're seeing that at the plaza you're seeing it down in the financial district um you're seeing it as like the it always reminds me of that seinfeld episode when when <laughs> uh they jerry tells a guy to get you know open up something that has cuisines from all different all over the world and then changes it and changes it back but you know, going to a place where someone wants barbecue, and one wants, you know, uh, sushi and someone's like this, but them all being at an amazing level. Right. And you just see this as something what I think is everybody sort of in together, helping each other pay for real estate and things like that.
3: Sure. Yeah. Um, I think food halls, you know, that's a very European tradition. I mean, there's I think it's Harrods in London. and um, But uh, I, we've definitely seen it sort of grow out of um, Smorgasburg here in New York, like these sort of outdoor Brooklyn flea outdoor uh, or sometimes indoor food markets or just markets in general, flea market type things where there's a ton of curated food stalls and that kind of grew into its own thing. And now I think it's becoming even more codified um, inside. Um, but, you know, I, I I love that stuff, especially as you say, I mean, there's such a distinction. What you're talking about, like the, you know, barbecue or sushi or whatever, like how do you distinguish between, you know, the food court at the mall yeah. and something that feels like this really smart, engaging Cool thing that you can kind of. Fluorescent lighting. What?
2: Fluorescent lighting.
3: Uh, You think that's how you distinguish not using fluorescent lighting? It's a
2: joke. Oh, you were making a
3: joke. Yoke. I'm sorry, I didn't recognize it. Sometimes it's hard to recognize when you're making jokes. Oh
2: my god. Um, Anyway.
3: But so, but you know, like Gotham West, which is a, a market um, on the all the way on the west side in like the 40s, you know, Ivan uh, Orkian opened his first ramen shop there. And there's a wonderful, like, kind of Spanish tapas place from Seamus Mullen. And there's uh, like a meat kind of thing from the guys from Cannibal. And it's got real utility because there, there's a lot more people like living over there right now. So they can actually shop and eat and use it as sort of um, a one stop amenity hall. But there's a lot more coming. I mean, Anthony Bourdain is opening a food hall of, wow. I think, hawker stalls. I think like Singaporean Really? hawker. That's what where oh, I, I, I don't actually recall off the top of my head, but it's it's in the it's in the works. I think it's supposed maybe even this spring, like as soon as this spring. Wow. Um, And I've read, you know, I've heard rumors that the guy from one of the founders of Noma is going to be opening like a Scandinavian food hall in Grand Central, um, which would be so awesome and so just fun. I mean, it's a great sort of simple way to get access to a lot of different things right like that's
2: and we've been to the the one over in stockholm with the fi- with all the fish and all the meats and things like that and that's just it's all brick and it's beautiful and you come coming out of the cold and you get like yeah. a hot bowl of fish soup it's just absolutely incredible i mean the
3: grand markets man like there's yeah. actually there's a really great one in cleveland um really yeah i'm i'm blanking on the name of it now i'm sort of annoyed with myself that i am but it's not so they have a few like actual food stalls in there where you get things but it's it's just this amazing, like, just it, like oh, it was like a public market, super old, really beautiful old building, and you know there's like fishmongers, and there's you know the sort of um, like sausage traditions of Cleveland, the Polish stuff and pierogies and all of that. And Then there's like Jonathan Sawyer's ramen place. There's like just great stuff, great fun. It's like such there's such a sense of occasion to shopping those kind of places.
2: Amazing. All yeah. right, so you're not gonna get out of here without giving me one trend. Prediction Mm. for this year. Mm. What do you got?
3: Well, I've been giving this a lot of thought, (laughs) and (laughs) um, no, I mean one thing that I've been noticing that I feel like is going to be big is um, uh, house milled flowers. Um, I would (laughs) agree. I would agree. (laughs) I would agree. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I've been I've been noticing it in different places. I, you know, Marco Canora who uh f- from hearth is has begun milling his own flour for his pasta and um, you know, Mark Ladner is milling um, for his polenta and then there's like a pizza place from the, I think it's called Bruno. It's from the people behind Box Kite in the East Village. They just did a Kickstarter campaign to raise money to like get their own mill and install it in the basement. And I think if you want to sort of talk about the kind of fever dream, the sort of coming full circle of the farm to table movement, like when you're milling your own grain, yeah. like you're fucking I'd, there. I
2: mean, it's a big part of Dan Barber's um, third plate uh, book and the Barber Wheat and Ancient Green's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, the idea is that, like, it's tough because there's not consistency of modern flour and mm-hmm. the shelf life is shorter, but it is something that is, like, healthier, has all the original nutrients and everything that you need. And it's, a unique flavor. It's like another way to like set yourself apart from any of your competitors. Sure, and it's
3: not ble- it's not you know bleached and you know. I was say them.
2: bland, but yes, yeah, but bleach as well. Bleach, yeah. yeah. I mean,
3: it's 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 really um, it's it is. It's, it's I think that's exactly right. I mean, everything that you want to eat now, all the places that you really care about are doing things that have idiosyncrasies, and you know the best. I mean, when you're baking bread, for example, like it's a, it, one of the things that's so poetic and beautiful about baking bread is that you have to adjust every single day the humidity the elevation the right. you know whatever it is it's never the same day to day right. and so to be able to go even deeper with that and actually be providing your own grain to do that i mean it's ancient. It's it's beautiful. It's like it's so personal and idiosyncratic. And yeah.
2: and I also think that your point is right, where it's like you know you're going to go so far to do sustainable and farm to table and all those things, and then you just have basic underlying ingredients yeah. that don't snap to those like same set of standards it's like right well, it's a
3: contradiction
2: once you get all the way down and that chill down and you start looking like all right so where can we improve that's probably one of the most you know along with oils and you know butters yeah. and things like that
3: yeah that's right exactly and how like how how far down in the basement can you actually go how much can you control
2: all the I way mean- to the soil baby all the way down <laughs> well jordana it's been a pleasure stick around thanks dudes hang out we got odetta coming up come next live next Oh man, well, that's I great. I know, I didn't even realize uh, they have a new album. We'll, we'll be doing a deep dive. Yeah. Remember when we saw them at the Bell House? Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. He was in like mesh shorts. It was did not re- give a fuck. Did not give a fuck. In mesh shorts. Yeah. Singing in Scottish. Dreaming awesome. about tomorrow. Big uh, dreams. Harmon, along with Snacky Tunes.
4: Hello. Jack
2: welcome. Enzy. First time meeting? Hi. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, big day today. Oh yeah. You want to talk about it?
4: Sure. Today is February twenty second. Yeah. Which is two two two. Yes. And my new record is actually called two two two. So by the serendipity of the date, we decided to put out the first single. Amazing. And you guys heard it first, top of the hour. Creek time is called. So we've been celebrating all kinds of, all kinds of things today, um, and it's also an angel number two two two. So there's lots of positive attributes. What's says, the angel number? Uh, It's called the Master Builder number, and it's all about pursuing your divine soul purpose. And that was just a coincidence. 22 is my lucky number. And then in the process of working on this record, 222 kept popping up all over the place. And in numerology, they say if numbers start to follow you, then that means that you're getting a message. Then I found out after the fact that we already named the record 222, that that was actually a really, really special number and just was an extra added encouragement to keep going on this path, making new tunes.
2: That is uh, that is great. And we were able to fit you in today as well, exactly. which is like Thank even you better. So much. Oh, our pleasure. Uh, so let's go back a little bit and let's talk about uh, New York. And let's talk about, since we're ever birds, we have to talk about your parents and what, what they do or what they did and continue Still to do. Still do. Still
4: continue do. Continue to do. Um, well, my wonderful, wonderful parents, Doris and Phil, started Two Boots Pizza in the middle of the '80s on Avenue A. What? And the East Village was a different terrain back then. I um, can't even imagine. Yeah, I can't either. Really. I mean, I was a little baby. Were they
2: Were they both making pies, or like, or what's the how, what's the division of labor there?
4: Well, actually, they started. My dad's first restaurant was the Great Jones Cafe, if you guys are familiar on mm-hmm, Great yeah? Jones Street, yep. and that place actually still exists. Yes, my family sold it. And we were just there on Mardi Gras, actually, last week. And everything is exactly the same. So my dad and his best friend from growing up opened that together. They were totally broke, just painted the menu on the wall. And my dad was the bartender. His friend was the chef. And then my mom actually came into the mix because they were looking for somebody to make a flag tapestry to hang outside the shop. And she was brought on to do a little bit of sewing. And then she just became the waitress and has legendarily been... Um, she's gone down in history, is dancing on the tables, and I think there were some pretty crazy things there. Uh, and then, because of that successful partnership, my parents decided to open Two Boots. And um, it just kind of took off from there, and it's still going, it's still spreading, and it's and, amazing.
2: Uh, did the lo- your love of music come from your parents, or was it self, uh, where did you find it?
4: Definitely, my parents encouraged all of their kids to play music. I have an older brother, he started playing violin when he was four, And then I started playing violin when I was four, and then my little sister started playing violin when she was four. So we were all trained in the Suzuki method, and all of us still play music. For all of us
2: in the room who don't know what that is.
4: (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of different kinds of um, pedagogy, and uh, the Suzuki method comes from Japan, and it's just a bunch of different books, and... Basically, you move through it piece by piece. Jack is working on his piano repertoire right now. <laughs> yeah.
2: How many books are there? Uh, seven? Seven.
0: Oh.
4: So it's basically Usually just a collection. Usually four year
0: olds get through book one. You know, yeah. So well, like...
4: But basically, each song is going to teach you a new skill. So as you move through the book, you're.
2: Oh, is it one song through. per book?
4: No, there's probably oh. like 20. 20. So it takes a while to get through. Um, but it just, it's just a, a very popular way to learn classical music. And so I went to the Third Street Music School and played violin, started taking uh, guitar and going to rock and roll day camp. And then once I got into college, I was in a folk band and started to get more into like the mandolin and the banjo and other string instruments. Folk hero? (laughs) My folk hero? Well, I wrote my thesis on Alan Lomax, who, for those of... You who don't know, he um, worked for the Library of Congress and he, Pete Seeger was his assistant, and he used to go and travel around the country and then the world in the 30s with huge, huge record, like technically it was called portable recording technology, but it weighed like 400 pounds. (laughs) So he would go into the fields, into the prisons, um, onto back porches and start archiving and um, cataloging and recording all of this really rich American folk culture. And if he hadn't done that, then we might not have that legacy. So he kind of influenced the general shaping of American culture and I'm really obsessed with him.
2: Yeah, that is a definitely a good hero. That is yeah. a great hero. Yeah,
4: you know he like discovered like Woody Guthrie, uh, Muddy Waters.
2: And those, but those guys never really went anywhere. Mm. Um, why don't we? Uh, why don't we hear a song? Yeah.
4: Okay. Yeah. Um, need we'll just first. test
2: that and make sure it works.
4: So yeah, I'm really interested in folk traditions. Sure yeah. Sick. Coming through. And um, about a year ago, I started hosting these Balkan vocal ensemble classes at my house, and taught by this incredible woman named Eva Selina. And she taught us a song called "Bato Nebo," and it was traditionally a lullaby that um, Balkan country singers used to um, bring into the child of a, uh, the room of a sick child, and they would do all these kinds of rituals and sing this song and light. Beautiful fragrances just to get the bad spirit, because they thought the sickness was caused by a bad spirit. So this is kind of my reinterpretation of that folklore. It's called Bato Nebo. It's true, I could have done better, but I won't be bullied to fully take the blame, you came into my body like a spirit So I have determined
2: Great. Better than great. Totally fucking awesome. (laughs) Is that? Well, can we work up towards that? Uh, Because what are you gonna? How are you gonna compliment (laughs) (laughs) that? We're (laughs) gonna start. We're gonna end with epic. Okay. Uh, So that's a lot to live up to. That was great. uh, What's your writing process? Just you? Where do you pull your influence
4: from? Uh, yeah, my writing process is just just me right now. Jack and I probably are going to work on some collabos in the future. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, basically, my writing process starts always with mistakes, and I really the banjo is my newest instrument, but I really love it because I don't really know technically how to play it. So I just kind of fuss around on it until I find something that I think is really beautiful or really weird, and then it's mostly by ear. So if I find one chord that I really like, then in my head I'll kind of hear another note and then figure out how to move to the next one. Um, and then piece by piece it comes together. And usually the lyrics come out in one sitting. Um, I don't really... There's some kind of songwriters that really tinker, get the words exactly right, the poetry, everything. For me it's really emotional, so it just kind of floods out. Uh, different every time, too. Different
2: every time. And I mean, for outside uh, influences as well, I know that you teach younger girls electronic music and radio production like do you find any influence in your teaching or take us through that experience
4: absolutely um so these songs i'm playing today are from 222 which is a new record but it's actually been done for a couple of months so um i've been inspired by the girls of the girls the lower east side girls club is where i work and they are into totally different kinds of music i in the first couple of weeks i asked them all to make a list of their top 10 favorite songs None of them were anything that I knew. And I came home to Jack and I said, hey, do you think you could download these songs for me? And they actually are like all of the songs that he plays in the club (laughs) with full service (laughs) DJs. The club. The club. So these like 12-year-olds have been turning me on to all kinds of new music. And I do feel like I want to explore... The songwriting process in those genres. Now that I've kind of like melded folk with a little bit of electronica, I'm interested in seeing maybe if I can write a house tune or something like that. Um, So yeah, I'm definitely, definitely inspired by those girls at the Girls Club. And I, you know, I have a lot of experience on instruments, but not so much in the digital realm. But through this process, I've learned a a lot about Ableton software with Jack recording the We did everything kind of like in our bedrooms, um, upstate at the country house. It was very sort of ramshackle. And everything went into Ableton. And then we took... You know, for example, we used my violin and then tuned it down to make a cello sound. So everything was really organic, but then run through the digital media. Um, And I'm excited to kind of see what the next step of that is.
2: What are some of the advice that you give to the girls who are, you know, obviously starting out at various levels, you know, to get, you know, from wherever they are to that might face some, like, uh, discouragement or some...
4: Well... Especially, we use these things called Ableton Push that are basically just like sample boards, and you push buttons, and then you have a beat. And so a lot of them are doing it visually. Um, It's pretty easy to just make sound, but what I try to encourage them to do is actually finish a project, because we're doing, it's a radio station that we're launching. So my goal with them is that in every class, they're going to be able to finish a beat, and then we can post it to the site. But... As they're just getting their preliminary skills, it's kind of taken a little while to actually finish a project, finish a beat, see it through to the end. And I think that's just advice for all artists because it's it's easy to start something and the hardest part is to finish it. So. Um, why
2: don't we hear another song? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What do you got for us?
4: Um, This song is called Lucky Dog.
2: Is it about Jack dating you?
4: No, it's about my dog. <laughs> rest in peace. Nice. Oh. Um, okay.
2: Nice. Sorry, about it. Just in, trying to, yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Hey, you that, know
0: what? This is where I interject, though, and boldly say that we're the most powerful pizza radio couple in the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, in the game. Heritage, yeah. yeah. Two in Boots the, uh, the, Side Girls the, Club.
2: the ranking came out this week, and you That's guys- That's right. We were top. Top.
0: Yep. Pizza radio
2: couples, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Greg and I are number second. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> number second. Number second. Jordana, how is that, uh, grammatically? Number second? <laughs> On, uh, Strong and White's, uh, grammar test. Did I pass? <laughs> no? You Okay. No embarrassment. <laughs> An embarrassment? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, we have a good time here.
4: So this one, I'm gonna switch over to banjo, and it's full of superstitions. I'm really interested. Like I said, like folk, folk culture, folk healing really interested in all those kinds of like old wives tales and things so i'd love to hear if you guys are superstitious about anything i don't think so uh, uh
2: actually i always say something at like make a wish eleven eleven, or something like that you always kiss the ceiling of a car when we drive through yellow light oh yeah Ugh. that's more like that's, more no, that's a good one that's more like reflex i i don't like turning out a light before i leave a room
4: really is that a is that a thing this for me. <laughs> do you have any? Oh, I,
1: don't
3: know. I, I, <laughs> um, I have a lot. I don't like step on cracks, and I don't. I but I'm, you know, I come from a Jewish family with lots of weird traditions.
2: Jordana, did on. you step on a crack? <laughs> oh my goodness, no.
3: Um, and I also do the thing like when you say something like that, like I, I do the touch wood thing, but I'm Jewish, so I go like, <clears throat> like I spit it out of my mouth. Oh. oh. Yeah.
2: Huh. Okay. So you touch wood and spit out of your mouth?
4: Thank you.
5: Yeah.
2: Thank you, Darren. I have
4: some really close friends who are from New Mexico, and I've had the pleasure of going out there to Albuquerque and working with some artists out there. And they have a lot of stories about the devil and about weird creatures and witches and all kinds of things. So that's really influenced my songwriting for this project. Um, so without further ado, this song is called Lucky Dog. I will throw some sea salt over my own head. Sprinkle flour to keep Satan off my doorstep. habits that I can't understand. My rational reflexes stupefy my super superstitious contraband. Chinese charms with concave mirrors Peer off my cell Special stones and crystal bones Protect me until My mind over Comes the myth of my Whispering Pennies, turquoise, and fool's gold. I light up my ghost town sage. Water glass is Toyoza, which is old. I'll never itch my palm. Here's to my lucky dog.
2: Great. Very sweet, Fantastic. very touching. I could see that playing at the end of uh, a movie about losing one of your favorite favorite animals.
4: Oh,
2: <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful. It's touching. Thank you. Uh, so let's talk about the new the new record. Two 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 two. <laughs> Where did it come from?
4: It came from a post beach afternoon. Jack and I enjoyed the sunshine and had. Been talking for a little bit about maybe experimenting with recording. Jack is coming from a radio background, um, a DJ background, a hip-hop background. And we just set up in my mom's bedroom. And we had one mic and a sunburn. And we made one song in that day. And then that was kind of our canvas that we started to create the thesis around. And a lot of this record has been grounded in... Uh, portable field recordings kind of like that's what I was talking about Alan Lomax that's been a big interest of mine Jack also brought that to the table so we would just like hang out in the kitchen and grind the pepper grinder, or put on the faucet, or bang on a pot, or click some scissors, and then we turn that into percussion sounds, or just sort of like sound design narration for the songs. So a lot of the songs are telling stories. So we were able to create these atmospheres and these audio landscapes around the songs, and that first song, called Tap Tap, which is the second on the record, kind of became the concept and then we were sitting in backyard having brunch one day
0: it was a bad brunch it was
4: a bad brunch but it was very fortuitous for our ideas and we came up with kind of the concept of this record i previously had made two eps and both of them featured amazing musicians dap tone horn players and you know afro funk bass players really really talented dudes but it was like 10 people in the band and we were i tracked at mama coco's funky kitchen shout out to oliver and it was super fun and it was just live and it was really raw and i'm super proud of that work and that's kind of when i met jack was when i was working on that starting work on that but he really pushed me to pursue a solo act and i of course was a little had a little bit of trepidation about that because it's obviously fun to play with other people, but it's also incredibly vulnerable to just be it's just all you. So that was the basis of this project is that everything, every sound was gonna be sampled from me. So you'll hear all over the record there's like pitch down vocals that are singing along with me. That's that's me, even though it sounds like a man, it's me, um like I said before. Um with the faucets, um everything was just produced by us and by me totally um yeah, not, not really relying on anybody else. Not relying on an engineer or a studio or even a space. I mean, it's very much collage altogether. So we were in different places. We were in the Long Island basement of Jack's youth. And um, yeah, that's where it came from.
2: That's how you get girls down to the basement? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Hey, instead of listening to records, go, I want to make a record with you, right? Yeah, that's um, what's like one of the more surprising things you learned about your process by making this record?
4: Oh, so many surprises!
2: You give me like one in your top three. It doesn't need to be the number one.
4: One of my top three. Well, good surprises or bad surprises. Give me one of each. <laughs> um, one of the other things that Jack said to me right at the start was that he wanted to record more songs that were going to actually end up on the record, and I historically have been really attached to the songs that I write because they're a part of my soul, right? So we actually did cut a song from the record, and it was only one and ended up being only one. We had some other little interludes and things, but I'm so happy that we cut that song because the record is so cohesive now. Uh, it just plays perfectly from start to finish, I think, and also a weird surprise. So we had, we had maybe 12 tracks at first in our, in our initial track list, We decided to just scrap all the interludes, all the fluff. We just cut it out, and eight songs came down to be exactly 22 minutes. Strange coincidence, but I probably wouldn't have been open to that in the past, um, that self-editing process, and Jack really helped me with that. And, I mean, we, like, cut verses and choruses out of songs. I mean, we really, like, took it to the chopping board before we decided it was finished, and letting go of that really was helpful, so that was a big lesson.
2: Uh, so we want to sure we have time for one more song, but where can people get it and what's coming up next? Where can they see you? Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat.
0: <laughs> mm. We should have put it out on Snapchat today.
4: Yeah, we still oh. can. It's still 2.22. True yeah. enough. Instagram is OB Hartman. Twitter is Odetta Hartman. Facebook is Odetta Hartman. SoundCloud is Odetta Hartman. <laughs> what else is there? OdettaHartman.com. com.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Tinder. Not Tinder. on Tinder. I hope, I hope
4: not. Yet. Not oh. on Tinder. Nope. <laughs> hey, Jack, I'm just
2: trying to get new fans. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Swipe right for new music, right? <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so w- and when are you playing next?
4: March 7th. Okay. Um, as part of the Mama Coco's showcase keeping it within the fam um that'll be a solo show we have something in the works with at babies much more at much more sorry at much more is march 7th about 8 p.m have something that works with babies all right and i mean we've been putting a lot of effort and intentions out in the past week and we've heard back from a lot of people um that are maybe going to help us get some more exposure on the internet so fingers crossed not really quite sure what's going to happen the next little some babies stretch coming of time. up this but, week yes yeah stay tuned definitely check it out
0: Can I plug? Yeah. Yeah. There's a remix project also through um, Full Service, which is kind of the electronic music collective thing that I run. Um, So Vogue ballroom legend Von Alor, who kind of taught Mike Hugh everything he knows, remixed one of the songs, and a bunch of other dudes like Tom Cruise from Supreme and Pool Boy 92 and Rectech, who built this studio. Um, So that's coming as well. So every song on the album was remixed, and that'll be available on fullserviceparty.com. And Odetta will also be at Bonnaroo this year. Um, with us, we do we do through Roberta's a um, thing at Bonnaroo every year. Odetta actually last year sang "You've Got to Show Me Love" during the '90s rave at 4 a.m. in Bonnaroo, a blue wig. In a blue wig, so
4: yeah, I yeah. mean that's been the most exciting thing about this project is figuring out the intersection between. My world, which is folk music, and Jack's world, which is electronic, and I think you'll hear it in the tracks that there's things that'll catch you off guard. A beat is going to come out of nowhere, um, maybe some distortion on the banjo or something. So it's it's all really fresh, and I'm excited to see what what happens next.
2: Awesome. All right. Well, um, what's the name of the last song you're going to play?
4: It's called "Oh Misery," and it's actually an old song from Bark, which I made with Oliver at Mama Coco's.
2: Nice. Uh, and uh, well Jordana thanks for coming another year another another wonderful show
3: I have to say I feel so fortunate to have been able to be in the studio with Odette it was so beautiful she's like a moon baby
2: yeah not so much us thank you
3: literally <laughs> <laughs> you guys fine fine you know how I get with old things I yeah. have new things
2: yeah. <laughs> but I thought we're, I thought you and I are having a renaissance I thought we you are. and I okay. we are, we are. alright well thank you so much uh, Greg you're the best oh I'll see you Thanks. next week. What's up? Oh, oh yeah. Little toe tapping. Yeah. Um, and do yourself a favor. Go see the Iceman Cometh. It's totally worth it. It's, so, it's super awesome. Shout out to uh, Brian Denhee and Nathan Lane for giving us five hours of pleasure. And if you have a chance, uh, let the white let the right one in. Is let the white one in. Wrong show, Greg. Let the right one in. Vampire plays at St. Antonio's Warehouse. We're going to go next week
3: is it really yeah. yeah I love that movie
2: yeah well they turn into a play and it's it's up for like two more weeks it's uh is, it's seven hours long is there room
3: for one more
2: <laughs> seven, information. seven hours long they just do three hours of snowing. it's beautiful love it uh alright I'll be in LA next week Greg I'll miss you just a shrug you'll have a good time way harsh alright take us out
4: Again when you fall split on my gun I was the first to draw and how can you think you're above the law thick of my wrist your back against the wall well I left my baby in my home i <laughs>